Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the pure milk of the word like a newborn babe, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and spiritual maturity through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which... He has given to us uh, magnificent and great promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Before we open God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, we are indeed grateful that we have this time to come together to rejoice in our salvation, to be reminded that we are saved not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to your mercy you saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And Father, we know that salvation is not based on anything that we do, but it is based exclusively on what Christ did on the cross. His death there was in our stead on our behalf. He paid the penalty in full for us so that in his death we have forgiveness. We are cleansed from sin. We are justified when we trust in Christ as Savior. And therefore we are assured of our everlasting life. Now, Father, as we continue to study about uh, Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3 and taking lessons from that as to how we should be praying for ourselves and for others, we pray that you would open our eyes to the truth of your word, that we might be edified and encouraged. In Christ's name, amen. All right, this morning I would like for you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. We're studying what it means to be strengthened by the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 3. But we're going to begin in Romans chapter 6, taking a look at the first uh, six verses or so in this chapter, because I believe that this section, these verses laid down for us the basic foundation of our spiritual life. And it shows that in the teaching of the New Testament, the significance of the resurrection of Christ is directly tied to our spiritual life. And so we need to understand this as we study this topic as part of the prayer of uh, Paul in Ephesians chapter 3. So the verse, the chapter begins with Paul asking this rhetorical question, what shall we say then? That takes us to an understanding of what's the context. And what has happened is that in the first uh, three chapters of Romans, Paul has established the fact that we're all sinners. Every single human being is a sinner, and sin is not some horrible, egregious thing. Uh, sin is just uh, it can be at what most people think is not so big a deal, and that is just uh, pride, arrogance, self-sufficiency, as opposed to God-dependence. 
Uh, sin involves sins of the mind. I read recently where somebody commented that in uh, one of the greatest things that they came to understand in learning the Bible is that the issue of mental attitude sins. I don't know how anybody can ever think that they are sinless or that it really doesn't apply to them uh, when mental attitude sins are emphasized in Scripture as some of the worst sins. They are self-destructive, and they can be destructive of relationships with others. Mental attitude sins include anger, resentment, uh, refusal to forgive others for past wrongs, that mental attitude sins uh, eat away at the soul, especially those related to lust, as Peter says. These these sins uh, destroy the soul. They are self-destructive. And they lead to the more overt sins, the sins of the tongue, like gossip and slander and reviling others, as well as to uh, the other overt sins we think of in terms of uh, theft, in terms of criminality, in terms of violence, in terms of uh, murder, uh, things of this nature. But those mental attitude sins are at the very root of this. And so what happens is Paul, once he establishes that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, then in chapters 4 and 5, he focuses on God's solution. Only God could solve the problem of human sin. Uh, No human being born other than Jesus, who's born of a virgin, is born without the taint of sin. All are born guilty of Adam's original sin and therefore born corrupt and spiritually dead. The only way to be saved, as Paul says in the first five verses of Romans chapter 4, is to be justified by faith, as illustrated in Abraham in the Old Testament. That we trust in Christ, we trust in the Old Testament, it was a trust in God's promise of a future salvation, In the New Testament, it is a trust in the completed work of Christ on the cross. And at the instant that we trust in Christ, God the Father imputes or credits to us perfect righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. He who knew no sin was made sin for us, that the righteousness of God might be found in us. That is not an experiential righteousness. It is what is referred to as an imputed righteousness. And because we are now clothed in the righteousness of Christ, God declares us to be righteous, to be justified. We are not changed morally. God does not eradicate our sin nature, but he uh, declares us to be righteous. Now, there are some who may hear that, and this is whom Paul is addressing in Romans 6.1, there are some that may hear that and they go, well, if Christ died for my sins and I'm forgiven, then I can just do whatever I want to do. And the answer to that is, may it never be. That's the rhetorical question that Paul deals with. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin live in it? Now, there's an important question. Uh, We haven't lost that capacity to sin, but 
there is, the Bible teaches that positionally, that is in terms of our legal position before God, we have died to sin in the sense that he will describe that we are no longer under the absolute tyranny of the sin nature. That power has now been broken. This is something that never happened in the Old Testament. This is something that is new to the post-cross dispensation. And he then explains this in Romans 6, 3, and 4. He says, do you not know? In other words, it's important to understand a principle that is taught throughout the New Testament. He says, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, that word baptism is a word that has caused a lot of confusion, a lot of difficulty, and as a matter of fact, it has caused a lot of violence over the years as people disagreed about what it meant. It was so controversial that when uh, the early translators of the Bible, men like John Wycliffe in the 14th century, others like uh, William Tyndale, who was the genuine forerunner of English translators in the 16th century, and others that were involved in uh, translating the Bible from the original languages into English, that rather than translate the word baptizo, which is the Greek verb, they simply transliterated it to avoid the fights. What that did was just obfuscate the meaning, and it didn't solve anything. The basic meaning of the Greek word to uh, the literal meaning of the word is to dip or to plunge or to immerse something. It was often used to describe taking cloth and immersing it into a dye. And in that process, the cloth would take on the color of the dye. So that led to a figurative use where as the cloth is identified with the dye, it changes its color uh, to the idea that what baptism signifies as a figurative term is identification with something. For example, in the classical period of Greek history, the word was used uh, to describe that which occurred when a new recruit in the military after basic training would uh, have an initiatory rite. He would take his sword or his spear and it would be dipped into a, uh, a bucket of pig's blood, indicating that it was, he was identified with death and he was now ready to go to war, even to the point of kill, killing the enemy. So it picks up as a figurative sense this idea of identification, and that's what's so important to understand in the Bible is that baptism that we're talking about has to do with an identification with Christ's death on the cross. So that when we talk about the baptism that's mentioned here, if we change the word to its, to it, it, its, um, its figurative meaning, then we would say, do you not know that as many of us as were identified with Christ 
were identified with his death. See, now that communicates. Uh, People understand what that means, and that is uh, what the word signifies here. What's interesting in the Bible is that there are eight different baptisms. For a lot of people, whenever they hear the word baptism, they think of getting wet, either through sprinkling or through being immersed in water. But actually, of these eight baptisms, only three involve the person being baptized uh, getting wet. In fact, in two of them, the people who got wet were not being identified in the correct way, and they lost their lives. The first three that have to do with a wet baptism that is identifying them in a positive way has to do, first of all, with the baptism of John the Baptist. John the Baptist's message was, uh, repent for the kingdom of God is near. That was his announcement because he was the forerunner of the Messiah. And so his mission was to prepare the nation Israel for the coming of the Messiah. And that meant they had to change the way they did things. They had to change their mind about the law. They had to change their mind about God. In some cases, that meant becoming a believer by trusting in the promise of salvation, the Old Testament promise of salvation and for others, it meant that they had to, they were saved. They had trusted in that redemptive promise of God in the Old Testament, but they had drifted from God or they were not uh, living a life that would honor God and they were not obeying the law as they should have. And so they needed to change their mind and turn back to God to be prepared for the coming of the Messiah and the coming of the kingdom. So that was John's baptism, and he is his message when he says uh, that to be baptized was to identify the people with his message. They were identifying with his message so that they were going to be prepared for the coming of the Messiah and the coming of the kingdom. The second wet baptism was the baptism of Jesus. When he came down at the beginning of his ministry, he is baptized by John the Baptist. Now, he doesn't have anything to repent for because he is the perfect son of God. He is without sin. So he, he comes and he is identified not with the message of John, but he is identifying with the plan and purpose of God to present himself publicly to Israel as the Messiah, the promised Savior, the one who would uh, save his people from their sins. And then the third wet baptism is believer's baptism, and that is when a person has trusted in Christ as Savior, then after he is given some instruction and making sure that he understands the gospel, he understands the purpose of baptism, that it is not to do anything to impress God, it is not done uh, as a way to uh, secure their salvation or things of that nature. It doesn't wash away their sins, literally. Uh, the purpose of baptism is to, uh, water baptism for the believer, is to give a visible picture of a very abstract teaching in Scripture. And that abstract teaching in Scripture is the baptism that's mentioned here, and that is the baptism by the Holy Spirit. 
And a lot of people get very confused about the baptism by the Holy Spirit, but the baptism of the Holy Spirit is what is explained here in Romans 6, 3, 4, 5, and 6. It is that at the instant that we trust Christ as Savior, there is this event that occurs. Now, we don't feel any different. It doesn't give us a warm, fuzzy glow. It doesn't make us more saved, but it is a tool. It is a tool like communion to remind us of what happened, the transaction that occurred in the heavenly sphere at the instant that we trusted Christ. And that is that when we trust Christ as Savior, we are instantly identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And that that has a great significance because being identified in his death indicates the fact that we are now free from the penalty of sin. The eternal penalty of sin is uh, assigned to every person who does not trust in Christ as Savior. This is what John says in John uh, 3.18. Uh, that we are to believe in the name of the Son of God, and if not, then we are condemned already. We are already in a state of spiritual death and condemned, but the only condition for uh, being delivered from condemnation is to believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God, to believe in who Jesus is and what he did for us on the cross. So what Paul, uh, and then we go off into other uh, dry baptisms. There's the baptism of Noah. Those who are identified with Noah were only seven others. They are his wife, his three sons, and their three wives. They're identified with him, so they get on the ark where they'll be perfectly dry. And then everyone else on the planet is uh, destroyed in the flood. So those who get wet, that's a punishment. Same thing happens at the Exodus event, when uh, Moses is leading the Israelites out of Egypt, they get trapped with the Red Sea at their back, and he calls upon the Lord to deliver them. God parts the Red Sea. The Israelites go through uh, the opening where it is dry, and they do not get wet. They're identified with Moses in his faith and his mission before God, and then after all the Israelites have crossed and the waters come crashing down and drown out the Egyptian army. So the ones who get wet once again are uh, wet from judgment and they are, they are destroyed. And then you have the baptism of the cross. That is when Christ is identified with our sins on the cross and he pays the penalty for our sins. And then there is the baptism of fire when... Uh, in the future, there are those who have not trusted in Christ, and they are brought to eternal judgment. But the baptism by the Holy Spirit is the one that's emphasized here. Paul says, do you not know that as many of us as were identified into Christ Jesus, identified with Christ, were identified into his death, therefore we were buried with him through identification It is a spiritual identification with his death that just as Christ was raised from the dead, even so we also should walk in newness of life. 
the result of understanding this is that when we are saved, as Paul will state it in Ephesians 2, uh, 10, that we were saved for good works, not because of good works, that we are saved for the purpose of walking in newness of life. Now, there are a number of times, and we'll go through this in detail when we get to the last three chapters of Ephesians, which we're very close to, where the focus shifts to our spiritual life, how we live. And this is always described with this metaphor of walking. And so that is important. So here it is walking in newness of life because we have been identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. We have been given new life in him. And as Jesus said, he came not like a thief, uh, to destroy, but he came to give life and to give it abundantly. A lot of people think, well, if I become a Christian, I got to give up everything. Well, if you become a Christian, you're going to gain so much more. You're blessed with all the heavenly blessings. You're blessed with more than you can think or imagine. And God doesn't ask you to give up anything. He only says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So the purpose of the resurrection is not payment for sin. The purpose of the resurrection is to be the benchmark for this new life that we have in Christ. And then in verse 6, Paul says, because we know this, that our old man, that is everything that we were before we were saved. Old man doesn't mean your sin nature because that's still very active. Uh, your old man is everything that you were before you were saved. That is crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with. See, you, the old man, all that you were before you were saved was crucified in the past for the purpose that something will take place in the future. And so that which takes place in the future is that you will learn not to walk according to your uh, sin nature. And he goes on to say in verse 10 that therefore we are to consider ourselves dead to sin. In the Old Testament and up to the point of the beginning of the church age and the, the, the apostles who were the first to undergo this baptism by the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, up until that point, there was never this, this break of the sin nature in the Old Testament, that the, the law doesn't provide for that. But now that we are in Christ, there is this break with the sin nature, and that is because of this ministry that is described as the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. So as we prepare to look at our passage, which talks about being strengthened through the Spirit, I just want to remind you of some of the ministries of God the Holy Spirit. Uh, on the left column, these are ministries that took place at the instant that you trusted in Christ as Savior. They're all non-experiential. By that, I mean you didn't feel anything. You might have felt elated because now you're going to be saved, but that doesn't have anything to do with these things happening. Uh, some people are sick, and they don't feel any better. Uh, imagine the thief on the cross. He is suffering excruciating pain, just like the Lord Jesus Christ, 
And he turns to the Lord Jesus Christ and he says, remember me today in your kingdom. And at, at that instant, he is, he, he is saved because Christ is going to recognize, Christ has recognized that he has trusted in him and his messianic promise at that, at that instant. But he didn't feel any better. When you're hanging nailed to a cross, there's not anything that's going to make you feel better. This is a legal transaction that occurs in heaven, and you are regenerated. You are made a new creature in Christ, Paul says in 2 Corinthians uh, Corinthians 5. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. And we know from Titus 3.5 that this is not by works of righteousness which you have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. This is accomplished by the Holy Spirit at that instant. We are given new life in him. We are made alive together with him as we studied in Ephesians chapter 2, verses uh, four, five, six, and seven, where it says that we, Jew and Gentile, are made alive together with him. We are uh, raised together, and we are seated together with him in the heavenlies. That is our legal position in Christ, so that all of that took place at the instant of salvation. Second, we have the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 9, and 11, 1 Corinthians 3, 15. And in 1 Corinthians 3, 15, Paul says, Do you not know that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit? God the Holy Spirit comes to indwell permanently every believer in Christ. You cannot lose it. It won't be taken from you. Also, you are sealed by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 1, 22, Ephesians 1, 13, and 4, 30. Twice in Ephesians we are told that we have been sealed. If we have trusted in Christ as Savior, we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit so that that sealing secures our eternal salvation. It is described in verse 14 of chapter 1 that the Holy Spirit is the guarantor of our inheritance so that that cannot be lost. You can't commit a sin that will cause you to lose your salvation because there is no sin that is too great for the grace of God. There is no sin that God forgot about and Christ didn't pay for on the cross. And sin is no longer the issue because Christ has paid the penalty for all sin. The issue is trusting in him. And when we do that, we have eternal forgiveness. We also receive a spiritual gift at the instant of salvation distributed by God the Holy Spirit. We are baptized, identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And lastly, God the Holy Spirit intercedes for us in our prayers and is one who makes our prayers efficacious by sort of cleaning them up and praying as they should. Paul says in Romans 8.26, we don't know how to pray as we ought, but God the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Now, those are permanent realities that we have and so much more in Christ. Those are part of all of those blessings that we are given at the instant of salvation. 
But there is one ministry that is repeated that is distinct, and that is one that is also mentioned here in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 13, where Paul says, or excuse me, Ephesians 5, 18, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled by means of the Holy Spirit. Now, we've gone through this a lot. That filling by the Holy Spirit doesn't mean we get more of the Holy Spirit, but that the Holy Spirit is the means by which we are filled with something. And just to remind you, as we read through Ephesians 5, 20 and following, 5, 20 and following, it results in being thankful, grateful to God for all things. And we are to submit to one another in the fear of God. It also involves uh, it involves speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our heart to the Lord. Now, if we compare that with Colossians 3.15 and following, the results listed in Ephesians 5.19 and following are the same results that come from letting the word of Christ richly dwell within us in Colossians 3.15. Now, if you do one thing, one act, and it results in certain things, and uh, uh, performing another act results in those same things, then those two acts are looking at the same thing in different perspectives. So Ephesians 5.18 says, be filled by means of the Spirit, doesn't tell you what you're being filled with. Colossians 3.15 says what we're filled with is the Word of Christ, the Word of God. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. And so it is the Spirit of God who uses the Word of God uh, to strengthen us and to mature us spiritually. This is what we're getting at in our passage in Ephesians 3, 14 through 16. So uh, look at that passage with me now, and uh, we will continue to look at this. For this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees. In other words, he's saying, I pray to the Father. And we talked about the fact that we are not to pray to the Son. We are not to pray to the Spirit. All of the examples in Scripture of prayer are all addressed to the Father. We have passages in Ephesians, Colossians, and other passages that we are to give thanks to the Father, but nowhere does it say to give thanks to the Son or give thanks to the Holy Spirit. We are always to direct our prayers to the Father. We have God the Holy Spirit as well as Jesus Christ, our high priest, who are interceding for us. We don't pray to the intercessors. We pray to the one to whom they are interceding. We pray to the Father. So we pray to the Father, and then in verse 15, he comments, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. And I pointed out last time, it's difficult to interpret this passage, but it indicates that God the Father is the father as the creator of all mankind. He is not the spiritual father of all mankind. That only comes one way. John chapter 1, verse 12, as many as received him, to them gave he the power to be called the sons of God. So the only way to enter into God's family is through salvation, 
but in a broader metaphorical sense, God is the one who is the creator of all human beings, and in th- that's the sense in which it is used here. And that means that there are no ethnic differences in the human race. We're all human beings, every single one of us, and we are not to put any kind of emphasis on whatever skin tones there might be. And this is especially brought out in terms of the body of Christ and what we studied in Ephesians chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 3, that because we are all one in Christ, there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile or any other ethnicities. We are all, as believers, one in Christ. And so our job is to be conformed to the image of Christ And it is not our job to be conformed to some subculture identity. We are to focus upon our mission as believers to be uh, one in Christ. So we've seen that Paul is praying, and then the content of his prayer comes in verse 16, that God would grant us something that emphasizes grace. And what he grants us, what he is praying for specifically, is that we are to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. So I built this staircase for us to remind us of the progression here. Paul is not listing different things that are um, different things that he prays for. There is a structure to these prayers. So he prays to the Father. And we ask the question, why is he praying to the Father? For what is he praying? He prays that the Father would use the Holy Spirit to strengthen them in their spiritual life. Here's the point. If Paul thinks it's so important that he needs to pray to God for the Ephesian believers that God would strengthen them through the Holy Spirit in their spiritual life, then that should be something we should be praying for others as well as for ourselves. It's interesting if you get one of some, there are several books like this that list all the prayers of Paul or all the prayers in the Bible. If you look at them, the things that the apostles prayed for are not the things we usually pray for. And the things that we usually pray for are never mentioned. And the application there is we need to figure out what we're supposed to actually be praying for, and the Scripture gives us that pattern and that information. So he's praying that the Father would use the Holy Spirit to strengthen them in their spiritual life. Well, why does he want us to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit? So that Christ would make his home in us. Now, Christ permanently indwells us. That's our positional truth. That is our positional legal position before God. Christ is in us, the hope of glory. But for him to be At home in us, in terms of fellowship, this is a different issue. And so we should ask the question, why does Paul want Christ to be at home in us? By the way, there's a verse in Revelation 3.20 that is horribly taken out of context by many organizations where Jesus is standing at the door of the church knocking And he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone lets me in, I will come in and sup with him or dine with him. That's the picture of fellowship. 
Two verses earlier, God says that he has phileo love. There's different words in the Greek for love. God never has a phileo love where the object of his love are unbelievers. He has agape love for unbelievers, but not phileo. That's a more intimate love. That's reserved for only those who are already saved. So when he's knocking on, even though this church is really messed up, Christ isn't knocking on the door saying, let me in so I can save you. He is knocking on the door saying, you need to let me be a part of your uh, spiritual life so that you can grow. They're already saved. We do not get saved by inviting Jesus into our nasty little life, our corrupt, spiritually dead soul. We believe in Jesus over 95 times in the, New, in, in the Gospel of John. John says the issue is believing in him, believe in his name, trust in him. He never says once. Nowhere in the Bible does it say commit your life to Jesus. Nowhere does it say invite him into your into your life. It doesn't say that. Revelation 3.20 is often used for that. And it's the same idea that we have here, that Christ would make his home in them. They're already saved, but Jesus isn't at home in their lives at this point. Just like the church of Laodicea, Jesus is not at home in them. He is excluded from the life of the church, but they're still saved. So the result is uh, that in his prayer, he prays that the Father would use the Holy Spirit to strengthen them with the first result that that Christ would make his home in them. And the purpose for that is so that they can begin to comprehend the immensity, the infinitude of Christ's love for them. Notice how important it is that the letting the Holy Spirit strengthen them is related to their ability to love one another and to exhibit the love of Christ in their life. We'll see a correlation to that. Uh, as we go forward today. So he says, why does he want them to know the love of Christ? The ultimate result is so that you might be spiritually mature, reflecting the love of Christ in your life. So that's this staircase to maturity. We need to learn to love as Christ loved. Now that only comes as a result of the Holy Spirit. So he's praying that he would... Uh, that they would be strengthened. And this is uh, the link to the word with might. And it's uh, this, this through the spirit and in the inner man. So these are the four components of this verse that are important to understand. We are to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Now, the phrase to be strengthened is a verb in the Greek that means to become strong, uh, to make strong. And this is a concept that is often talked about in Scripture. So it's not just something new that Paul's talking about here, but it goes back even to the Old Testament. For example, in Psalm 27:14, we read, Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Now, they didn't have the Holy Spirit, so the Holy Spirit's not mentioned there, 
But the focal point for them was to wait on the Lord and God would be the one who would strengthen them. And it's interesting how that is connected to the concept of of courage. And that is how this is translated uh, in some different translations, but in the sense of what is being strengthened. It is they're strengthened in the sense of having courage to follow God, to trust God in the midst of difficult circumstances. In Psalm 31:24, we read again, be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart. All you who hope in the Lord. Then in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 16, 13, Paul says, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave and strong. Notice Old Testament, New Testament connect the concept of courage to strength. Because in our lives, we're going to face difficult circumstances. Sometimes we're going to, like David in the Psalms, we're facing enemies who seek our life. Sometimes we seek those who want to destroy us because they're in competition with us. They want our job. They just despise us because we're Christians. And the, the encouragement here is to be strong in the Lord who strengthens us. It is God, the Holy Spirit, who strengthens us so that even when they, uh, in church history, you have all of these examples of these martyrs who died for their faith during the time of the reign of uh, Bloody Mary in the mid-16th century. You go back to uh, the Roman Empire and some of the persecutions there. And it's amazing the courage and the strength that these believers had to face horrible, horrible torture and death. And yet they would go uh, go to their grave singing hymns to God, praising God and giving the gospel to the crowds and to the uh, those who were persecuting and torturing them. So we are to be strengthened with might, and this occur- always takes us back to God's power. We looked at this last week, so I just wanted to hit a couple of things that we I said last time by way of review, that God's power is unlimited. His omnipotence refers to the fact that he is able to do whatever he desires to do. God is able to accomplish anything. Omni indicates that his power is without limits. He is omnipotent. And in the scriptures, his omnipotence relates to three areas I said last time. Creation, he who created everything. If God is able to create an atom and lock into that atom the power that an atom has, uh, don't you think he has the ability to handle any problem that we face? It's very simple. God has the ability. Uh, so we see the emphasis in his creation, Romans 1.20. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. But it's used a lot with regard to resurrection, the resurrection of Christ, that in Romans 1.4, Christ's resurrection declared him to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness. In 1 Corinthians 6.14, God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. 
that he has the ability to give us life even after death. 1 Corinthians 15:43 our physical body is sown in dishonor it is raised in glory it is sown in weakness it is raised in power God has the power to resurrect us to give us life eternal 2 Corinthians 13:4 though he was crucified in weakness yet he lives by the power of God for we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God. God's power is that which strengthens the unbeliever. And Paul prayed in Philippians 3.10 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. This is a prayer, and the reason he is praying this is related to what we're studying in Ephesians 3 that ties to uh, spiritual strength and power. And then, of course, it is applied to the gospel. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And First Peter 1, 5, that we are kept by the power of God. And so this all describes that divine power that God has given to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. Now back to Ephesians 3.16, we are strengthened with might through his spirit. It is God the Holy Spirit who is doing this. And here we have an interesting phrase in the Greek. It is dia, the preposition dia, plus uh, the noun pneuma, but it has the article with it, which is unusual. A lot of times in Greek, you can simply replace uh, the article with the preposition. So that just by having the preposition in front of that implies that the noun is definite. But when the, when the writer wants to emphasize the specificity of the noun, he may include the article as well. So he's making it very clear we are uh, strengthened through it, it has the pronoun his spirit, but it also has that article there to really make it clear this is through God the Holy Spirit that is being focused on here. And the use of this preposition is very, very similar. In fact, I, I, it's hard to explain the difference. Uh, in Ephesians 5.18, we are to be filled by means of the Spirit. It uses a different preposition and a different uh, form of the noun. It's, it's in plus the dative. Uh, here it is dia plus the genitive. It's the same phrase kind of construction we have in, in Ephesians 2.8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It emphasizes the uh, immediate agent who is producing the action. So for salvation, it is our faith. In this passage, that who's, the one who strengthens us is God's Spirit. And this takes place in the inner man. And this is parallel if you look at the next verse in uh, 3.17... 3.17, we read that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So in your hearts in that verse ties back to the inner man. It is our spiritual life that he's focusing on here. 
And so the inner man relates to our spiritual life, not strengthening our outer man. You do that by going to the gym or walking or whatever it is that you do to keep in shape. But this is talking about keeping your spiritual life in shape, uh, that we are strengthened through the Holy Spirit. Now, how does that happen? Well, we've got a couple of passages to look at. The primary one is in Galatians 5.14 and following. In Galatians 5.14, Paul is talking about a topic that is related to his prayer here in Ephesians 3. It is love. He gives the command, a quote from the Old Testament, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed with one another. Now, biting and devouring one another is not to be taken literally. They don't have a problem with cannibalism. This is a metaphor for sins of the tongue, for slander, for gossip, for expressing your anger, hostility, resentment, and bitterness towards others. He said that you'll just consume one another. The end result is destructive. And we don't have to look far to get examples of that. Those of you who, are, who like to watch the news every day, they report on numerous examples of people who are filled with bitterness and anger for some real or imagined hurt. And as long as they don't give it up in love and uh, forgive one another as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us, then it will always result in destruction, consuming one another. The solution is the biblical solution. I say walk by means of the Spirit. We have to walk by means of the Spirit. That means that we have to let the Word of Christ richly dwell within us. We have to be in right relationship with God. And when we sin, we have to confess sin because then God forgives us of those sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So the command is to walk by means of the Spirit and you will not bring to completion the lust of the flesh. That is, you're not going to bring to completion those horrible desires that you have that come from your sin nature. And if we walk by the Spirit, then God the Holy Spirit is going to produce a character change in us. He's going to transform us into the character of Christ, and this is indicated by this list of the, called the fruit of the Spirit. And I just want to point out that what's his, that his initial command back in verse 14 is to love one another. What's the first fruit of the Spirit that he mentions? Uh, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. If you look at your attitudes, if you look at your reactions, and they are not characterized by kindness and goodness, that is grace orientation, if they're not characterized by the love of God, then you're walking according to your sin nature. Now, what is love? We'll spend some more time on that. But love is seeking the absolute best for the object of your love. Now, the problem with that is most people define that as what they think is best for the object of their love. And that has nothing to do with love. That's just selfishness. You have to know the Word of God. You have to understand what God wants in a person's life. And that's what best is. Best is God's will for them. 
And so we love by recognizing what God's values are and applying that toward others. So this is something very different from what people normally see or hear about life. How do we get it? What kind of life is it? It's a new life. And that takes us back to Romans 6, that because we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, we are to walk in newness of life. We're not to live like everybody else in our culture. We're not to look at our friends and our neighbors and our teachers and uh, people we work with for our standard. We're to look at Christ for our standard. We have a new life. We have a new mission. And we have a new means of living that life, and that is walking by the Holy Spirit. Now, next week, we'll come back and continue through this uh, passage, understanding what it means that Christ will dwell in our hearts with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to focus upon the fact that we've been given new life because we've been identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. We have been raised to newness of life, but so often we don't represent that. Uh, we don't reflect that. We don't live any, in any way different from those around us. And that is because we're still walking according to our sin nature, not walking according to God the Holy Spirit. The only way to have a new life is to trust in Christ as Savior. Uh, It's not by baptism. It's not by joining a church. It's not by having a religious experience. As the Scripture teaches again and again, it's simply by faith in Christ. Faith alone, not accompanied by works, not dependent upon something else other than faith, but faith alone in Christ alone, trusting in him, trusting in his word, walking by the spirit. And we can see this transformed life. But salvation is based simply and solely on trusting in Jesus Christ's work on the cross, believing that he died for us, he died in our place, He paid our penalty, and by trusting in him, we know we have everlasting life. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to think about this message, to remind us of what we went through this morning, that we may be reminded of the importance of being strengthened by the Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.